Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and in this fortnightly podcast series, I talk to filmmakers about their documentaries, both in terms of the subjects they choose and the way in which they fund, craft and distribute their work. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak to Jerry Rothwell, the celebrated director of the new feature documentary, The Reason I Jump. The film is now widely available to watch in cinemas in the UK and Ireland. The Reason I Jump, based on the ideas and text of the book of the same name, is an astonishing film both because it is incredibly well made and also because it gives an amazing insight into the world of people with autism who are non-verbal. Using an immersive soundscape and stunning cinematography, the film plunges you into the world of non-verbal autism and creates a piece of powerful cinema that I certainly found to be very emotional. It's highly recommended. Here's the trailer for The Reason I Jump. Can you imagine how your life would be if you couldn't say what you wanted? Naoki Higashida makes a map of his mind. It's kind of poetry. How do I see the world? For me, the details jump straight out. Inside my head, there isn't really such a big difference between what I was told just now and what I heard a long time ago. (laughs) My mind is forever swaying this way and that. Try to stop her from being herself. I think we can change the conversation around autism by being part of the conversation. Right now, Joss is having a joy that I will never come close to. (laughs) To live my life as a human being, nothing is more important than being able to express myself. Jerry, thanks a million for joining me on the podcast. Just to get started, would you mind describing for people the film and, and what's it, what it's about? So the, the film is based on an, a book by a 12-year-old non-speaking autistic Japanese boy um, who wrote it by pointing to letters on a letterboard. And in the book, um, Naoki Higashida, the writer, above all, he kind of evokes a, a sensory world, a sensory universe of, of intense sights, sounds, memories, um, sort of feelings. And that the text of that book is the sort of starting point for the film. When I went to see Matt Naoki, he didn't want to be in the film, didn't want it to be about him, uh, which to begin with felt sort of disastrous but actually I think was a gift to the film because what we do with that text is sort of use it as a way of exploring uh, the lives of a number of non-speaking autistic people around the world and trying to do that in a with a sort of cinematic equivalent of the book so in a sensory way um, one that immerses you as much as possible in the kind of everyday lives of of the five people we, we meet. 
Is that the background to the film then that you had read this book and it had made you feel like this was something you wanted to make into a film? Because at first glance, the idea of, of making a film about mostly non-verbal autism sounds like a huge challenge. Yeah, it's not um, an area that I was completely unfamiliar with. You know, as, a, as a, I started out as a kind of community artist and did a lot of work uh around using film as a as an advocacy tool with disabled people many of whom were autistic or had uh, learning disabilities so so it wasn't a kind of subject matter that i i was unfamiliar to me um i I think the book taught me all kinds of things that i hadn't realized i think um it, I, it was drawn to my attention by um, the producers of the film, two of the producers of the film, uh, Stevie Lee and, and Jeremy Deere, whose son Joss is in the film uh, as a young autistic boy, 12 years old. Um, and I think when they found the book, they found it kind of revelatory in the way they understood their son. And they uh, started discussions with my producer, Al Morrow. And, you know, then, then I, I came on to and, and got involved in the film and, and thought about doing it in this way that, that, use the text of the of the book with with um different people around the world and we kind of wanted to make it global because i sort of feel those representations of non-speaking autistic people are so often kind of in the west and north and and autism is everywhere and 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 manifests itself in different ways according to the the cultures people are living in the film combines quite a number of elements you know it has stories of of those characters those personalities those people that you mentioned there's monologue from the book there is your audio and visual representations um of the experiences of people with autism and you kind of have a proxy protagonist i suppose in the young boy that sort of becomes the protagonist of the film and then david mitchell as well the author so you had quite a number of elements in the film how did you figure out that they would be your elements and then start to think about how you would combine them? I think it was one of the most sort of improvisatory films that I've made in the sense of, uh, usually when I think about film in the early stages, I'm thinking of a sort of shape, you know, a rough kind of shape. Where are the intense moments? Where are the, where's the contemplative material? Where are the crisis moments? And obviously, usually you have a story. In this case, the the book is a set of 58 questions and answers. So it's kind of an unpromising start in some ways. Um, There's no characters, there's no plot. Um, But I think during, so one sort of big dilemma in the edit was, you know, should you do that conventional thing in a multi-character documentary where you intercut between the people and, you know, you leave each one on a cliffhanger and then you go to the next. Um, And that felt really inappropriate. It felt like what we wanted to do was, was immerse people in the detail of people's lives and that that needed time and you needed time with each, each character in the film. Um, So that, so that structure of, of a, of, of being with one person for 15 minutes and then being with another person for 15 minutes and, and you take your experience of the first person into your experience of the second person and that starts to develop an understanding of the things those people have in common. Um, that was the kind of structure that we went to. And then I really wanted to avoid the idea of th- these people being case studies or being like examples of the words in the book. So that had kind of two implications i think first to try and find a space for the book that wasn't the documentary uh contributors space uh you know which was where we came 
up with this idea of, of a sort of journey, you know, very loosely a, a journey through a landscape of this young, non-speaking Japanese British lad, Jim Fujiwara, um, who we kind of shot with in, in different locations as he kind of journeys from the sea to the city. And that has its origins actually in a, in a story Naoki wrote about being kind of free of his body and, and sort of floating through the world. Um, so that, and then I think that the kind of non-autistic people in the film who are generally parents, um, you know, I, I wanted to avoid that kind of trope of, of the non-speaking autistic film where it's all told through the experience, through the dramatic emotional experience of the parent. Um, so I think they're kind of there to give some context, which we might need at times. Um, but as much as possible, we try to kind of pare back on that as, as much as we could. Yeah, it's interesting the way you approach it. You actually told yourself lots of things that you wouldn't do, you know, <laughs> which then in informs what you actually do, because it means you kind of have to take those choices of, of what you know you want to avoid. And then that hones what you actually want to do. Yeah, I think Walter Murch said the director is the film's immune system. And I think that's a really valuable thing that your job in a way is to is to filter things out rather than to kind of create them, you know, especially in documentary where, you know, it's an engagement with the world. And what you're doing is kind of selecting and filtering reality into this thing, which somehow represents it, or represents your experience of encountering that that reality. Um, yeah, so I, th I guess you, you, you start a filmmaking process where you're building up a set of rules and I, I tend to be far too expansive in that phase you know where I'll allow all kinds of stuff in and probably you know the films that I make generally they have lots of characters and they go into lots of places so I struggle a bit with that thing of like narrowing it down and being more minimal but um, I think in in this case it's like if you had some we had sort of I think kind of rules about the way we shot things you know we knew that we didn't want to use lots of special effects we wanted to pull a different way of seeing just from the everyday lives of of the people we were with so to shoot in those environments and record sound in those environments but to do it in a way that took off from Naoki's words in the book you know one, one of the things that Naoki says is is that for him he often gets immersed in the detail of things in in the the patterns or the shapes or the flow of of a detail to the exclusion of all else to the exclusion of the the overall context and so that was an idea that we took into the shooting you know shooting with macro lenses where you'll encounter a situation or an object just through a detail of it before you kind of reveal what that detail is another aspect of that to me felt like there's great texture in the film you know that that whether it's in the macro shots or what's in the, the the wider shots is that in not using special effects you're kind of committing to finding the right cinematic language to go with his words and in my mind i feel like that would take a tremendous amount of planning and location research and all those kinds of things how did you kind of approach those aspects I think it's probably back to that set of rules. I think we, I, I don't know, Ruben and I had to write something about the cinematography in the film a, a while back. And I think we kind of realized really that there were three approaches. You know, one was this, uh, um, it was a documentary approach that was relatively kind of stepped back and wide frame and and kind of allowed a lot of kind of negative space and around people and a, a bit of distance. Combine that with a very subjective approach to shooting spaces so a lot of detail, 
uh, often we'd shoot that at the end of the day you know we just like so for example we'd spend a day with Amrit in 40 degree heat in in Noida on the edges of Delhi in the high-rise block and she's got you know four different fans kind of turning and and creating this kind of vibration in the air and they're making this sort of rattly sound and it feels like if you kind of get into it the room is kind of vibrating pulsating and then you, I suppose you start to think okay how can we convey that those that pulsation of the room which it feels like Amrit kind of enjoys and and uh, you know Amrit would sit sit and kind of rock in front of the fan in a way that felt like she enjoyed the flow of air and the rhythms that it created. Uh, so then it's about, yeah, let's shoot for that. Um, so not so much planning, you know, I don't, I think we might have noticed the day before that there were a lot of fans in the, in the room and that they, they had and got this feeling from them, but it's more being attentive to, to kind of how, yeah, how the, how the space feels. And we knew that that was a, a key way of shooting it. And then I suppose the third element was the element with the young boy, which we wanted to be much more kinetic and much more have a lot more movement to it. So we shot all that with a with a Movi um, sort of Steadicam uh, type uh, device, um, which allowed us to kind of, you know, be and follow Jim through these landscapes. In terms of the people that you chose to be in the film, as you mentioned, they're very much an international collection of people. How did you go about finding those people knowing that you've got you know some in the united states some in the uk in india in africa if i'm not mistaken it's a little while since i saw the film actually it's very much an international group of people how how did you approach finding them i mean i think there are lots of you know the 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 choices of of people was was endless i guess you know i i I suppose i'm not really a great believer in like casting a documentary i sort of feel it it's what's much more important is the relationship between the filmmaker and the person being filmed and and what how that kind of manifests itself on screen and how do you build that relationship but i suppose for this you know when i saw amrit's work she's a 21 year old artist who started drawing at the age of four or five as a way of communicating her day to her mum and that drawing that communication has turned into this incredible artwork very vibrant of color and full of detail that has a very distinctive way of looking at the world and it felt to me that that was the place to start if you know if what we wanted to do first of all like the book does is take you into this world of sort of dizzying detail and intensity that to do that through a visual artist was a good place to start um so it's hence the choice of amrit then you know that the film ends with um justina in sierra leone and and i also i knew that the film kind of wanted to have this progressive kind of opening out maybe from a from a from an internal quite kind of subjective sensory experience into one that that thought about society and society's response to autism and how that shaped what autism is and how it's experienced um and i'd been filming in sierra leone and was kind of interested in in autism in a sierra leonean context and came across this amazing work um from mary pentimity who does this work with uh, particularly in rural areas um with she marries the mother of justina and became aware i think of the stigma associated with autism and the association of autism with um with uh um autistic children being children of of devils you know and um which is a strongly held belief and results in autistic children being abandoned quite frequently and particularly in the kind of rural areas and mary's been doing this work with parents and communities it's essentially education um awareness raising um so that felt like 
an interesting place to look at, at, at how we have to kind of grapple with the way society views uh, non-speaking autistic people, not just stay within the experience of it. And I think, and I tried in the film to make it clear that this wasn't like an African problem. This is like a, this is something that all of our, our societies do to a greater or lesser extent, you know, in, in Europe, 75 years ago you know autistic people were being gassed in vans in in germany you know it's it, it's a it's a dark you know when i started working with autistic people they were um you know long stay hospitals were essentially kind of dumping grounds for people so it's a it's a very dark history that we're emerging from you know and and it felt like it was important to speak about that as well you mentioned the edit and in a lot of cases, you're answering my questions before I can get to them. But uh, <laughs> now I will ask you, there's always moments in the edit where you are bringing all these elements together and you reach a problem or you reach something, a challenge that you have to overcome. Was there any such time in your edit where you had something to figure out and and, had, and, and what was the result of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea of... of um, the film almost being in sections you know the way you spend a lot of time with each each person and then move to the next and left the first person behind was something we came to a bit later in the edit uh you know to begin with i think we were trying to do that thing of intercutting uh intercutting scenes with different people and that and it felt like quite a bold move to move away from that i think i'd seen camera person which has that structure of um you know, very kind of uh, you're you're with someone and then you're somewhere else completely, and it's very much like the film is in parts. And I loved that structure in Camera Person, and I felt like it could work for this um, because ultimately you were still building up one shape. It wasn't like you were making four separate films about different groups of people. It, they they all combine into a whole. So I think that was that was one sort of challenge, and that was a you know a, a big negotiation with with all the the stakeholders in the film, I guess, as well, um, who, you know, were worried. Will it be like four different films, four short films? This is not what we funded, you know, <laughs> that sort All of right. stuff. Um, but, but um, you know, ultimately people came were on board for it and, and that was great. And But, I mean, another another really difficult decision was I'd filmed with a fifth uh, a fifth person or a sixth person, actually, because there are two people together in the States, um, a young lad in, in Glasgow. And he'd been... Uh, in a theatre production based on uh, the reason I jump. And I thought there was something really nicely kind of, you know, interesting about moving between this this performance of the book and the book itself. Um, and Corey himself is a fascinating young man who was really into um, space and science and kind of, you know, but performing was a, a huge step for him. And that was... It sort of didn't work in the edit, not because of anything we'd shot or because of um, it wasn't interesting or anything like that, but because structurally the idea of the play knocked against the idea of the book. You know, in the I think you can kind of only have one overarching organizing structure for things, and this was like two overarching, which were going to compete with each other. Hang on, is this a book? Is this a play? What's you know, what is it? Um, so so in the end, you know, we we cut that which was a, a radical ruthless decision difficult decision um but i think we sort of made it uh, in time and and hopefully we'll do other other things with that material if i could ask you a little bit more about the visual makeup of the film i personally always find it great that if at a point in the edit you can sort of look at your film and say okay i see what i have 
created here in terms of the structure of the story and that informs maybe some new shooting that I will do to create more visual landscape for it. Did you do that in this film or was everything kind of on location or did you go out afterwards and go, okay, like we've edited a certain amount. I now know what I need to shoot for this. No, I think, I mean, everything was pretty much shot on location, but we did schedule a a sort of second visit to uh, Amrit, which was during the edit, which was kind of always in the schedule. And that's when I think in the film, you see her exhibition coming to fruition. Um, and then there were some things. So, for example, we shoot with David Mitchell, who's the translator of the book, who really is the person who tells you what the book is, you know, which felt like an important thing to do in the film. Um, and there's a moment, I think, where, we, where we're using an extract from the book that's about rain and we shot some material of kind of water falling on the pages of the book, you know, so that, that was definitely something we did kind of late on in my kitchen. Um, and, uh, but I think mostly, I hope I'm not misremembering it, but mostly it was kind of, you know, shot at the time. And I guess we ended up, um, as you always do, you know, there were a number of sequences that that never made it. You know, we spent a day with Ben, who's part of a rowing club, rowing on the on the kind of river by Washington, D.C., um, which again, you know, was it's when two scenes have the same function, isn't it? It's like you you can a scene can really only have one function. And if there are then two scenes that have the same function, uh, that's where you kind of need to make the ruthless decision. And and I think, you know, sometimes there were sen- scenes that took you into a kind of particularly sensory, particular sensory experience, um, which were really kind of repeats of other scenes, even though we're, they were in a completely different context. And then you obviously have an incredible soundscape and that's such a huge part of this film. And it's, I think on the link that I saw, it actually said, you know, put on your headphones or, you know, or maybe that was in the email Probably, that came yeah, with yeah. it, you know, because this is really a 360 kind of soundscape. A lot of the time in documentary, you know, sound can almost be an afterthought of sorts, you know, but obviously it's incredibly central to this. Was that something new for you to approach it in that way? And, and how did you go about that? A, a little bit new, yeah. I, I knew that I wanted to work with Nick Ryan, who's a sound artist who's done a lot of work around the kind of neuroscience of hearing and of listening and who um, is synesthetic himself. And synesthesia is very common in non-speaking autistic people. So I felt he could bring some of his kind of personal experience to the structure of the of this sound track we knew from Naoki's book and from other writings by non-speaking autistics is that sound and was incredibly important and the intensity of sound was incredibly important to to their daily experience um and Nick said uh well let's let's make the film in 360 uh which I had no idea what that meant or involved but sounded like a good idea um so I said yes and that kind of we then tried to do something which I think was probably quite unusual mainly through our naivety which is that our, our sound recorder Sarah Lima basically recorded 360 uh, sound in all of our observational locations so we would have one recorder on the camera getting the kind of positional 360 she'd have a, 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 a kind of ambio 360 mic which was recording the ambience of, of room spaces and things like that and then she'd have a, a ms mic a, a double ms on the on the boom which also can give you a, a a sort of surround feel. Um, so when it came to the mix, we were kind of rooting it in these real uh, 360, not you know, not kind of atmoses which were recorded separately, but the, the real 360 atmoses of, of the spaces that we were in. And 
in a Dolby Atmos mix, you can position a sound in, I think, 128 different places in the cinema. So you're kind of thinking quite carefully where how sounds are moving, where they're appearing. And there's a trick, I think we learned to it, which is, you know, you, you can't do that all the time, you know, that people become immune to it. So you have to do it in kind of key moments of the film. There are these points where the sound becomes very, very sort of 360. Um, and we then did a binaural mix, which is why you were told to listen on the headphones, which basically kind of splits the, the stereo wide and, and gives a sort of 360 feel inside the headphones. But there's nothing like experiencing the film in a, in a Dolby Atmos cinema, which I hope people can do coming up soon. So take me through that then. So w- when you go to the sound mix, uh, sound edit, sound, is that when you're making those decisions, you're sitting in a room and you're experiencing that scene by scene and trying to figure it out as you go? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, we start out with the, the 16 tracks of audio that Sarah's recorded on location. Nick's then designing and augmenting that and which tracks are used uh, in a in a sound, sound design track lay, essentially. Um, and in doing that, you know, Nick would do things like there's a, there's a sequence about rain, uh, in the film, which comes from a piece of writing now he does about how when he hears the sound of rain, he has to run through his mental images of, of memories of rain in order to associate the sound of rain with the idea that it is now raining. Um, so Nick kind of in that sequence, which we happen to shoot Amrit during a thunderstorm and, um, Nick, uh, sort of then layers into that sounds which are resonant of resonant of rain uh, as though they're kind of memories of rain but aren't necessarily rain like the sound of paper crinkling or of of um, the, the tapping on a piece of metal or or different sounds which are more feel more like associations or memories and give the audience hopefully an idea that this is kind of rain but it's like rain in the past or it's rain remembered or it's you know um and then going into the mix, we're then working with uh, Ben Baird who, from Aquarium who did the mix. Um, yeah, thinking about more more specifically about the positioning of those sounds and whether or how how they kind of move and, and how they combine with each other. Well, I mean, taking a little bit of a step back because you mentioned it earlier, the stakeholders and having to, to change your approach and then maybe run that past people. Can you tell me a little bit about the the background of putting this film together as something maybe a little bit different to what you had done before, saying to potential partners, funders, that this is about people who are nonverbal and, you know, the immediate thought people might have is, well, how are you going to do that? And then convincing them of your approach. I know it's probably a long time ago and a little bit boring for you at this stage, but it would be interesting to, to hear how you approach that. So the, the main um, finances on the film were Vulcan Productions in, in the States and uh, the BFI. Um, and they were both kind of hugely supportive of the film and of the idea, you know, uh, you know, I think the BFI brought that desire for it to be cinema you know not just to be a tv doc but to be something that worked in the cinema and obviously because the book is a a sensory above all a sensory description of experience it felt potentially very cinematic Um, and Vulcan brought a desire that the film would also have impact would would sort of you know chain bring about some changes in the ways people perceived non-speaking autistic people bring about some you know more fulfilling lives for for non-speaking autistic people so so it's like you're bringing those two desires together 
Um, and sometimes, you know, the film feels too cinematic for the people that want impact and too impactful for the, or too, you know, too uh, campaigny for those that want it to be cinematic. And I think, you know, in the end, you're trying to, you are trying to create a, an experience, like a 90, 80, 90 minute experience for people in a cinema. That's what's in my head when I'm making the film. But you're also aware that it needs to, um, you know, it needs not to fall into the tropes of autism representation it needs to show for example it needs to show the diversity of this community it needs not to stereotype autism in a certain non-speaking autism in a certain way so you're aware of those represent issues of representation i think whilst you're whilst you're doing it and then it's it's you know i generally in the making of a film i show people a lot of stuff i show people scenes and you know probably by the time they see them in the film they're so familiar they're kind of they can no longer judge them <laughs> And uh, you just hope that it's, uh, yeah, it'll it'll get through. But I think, you know, there were times where I think the very first cut, someone said, you know, what you've made is an art film and that's not what we want. And then, you know, at times it's like things are too far the other way. So it's kind of just calibrating the film. And you hope, you know, obviously it always, I think to make a, f a good film, you don't, you have to not only have, you have to not only do the filmmaking well, but you have to have the conditions to make a good film, you know, and, and those conditions are about, you know, who's funding it, where, where are their, what, what's the nature of their interventions? Uh, are they helpful? Are they unhelpful? Are they, are they, you know, and how can we make this a, a collaboration uh, in which we're all heading in the same direction? Um, and, and I think I feel on this film, particularly for me, it did feel like that was given an enormous amount of freedom and trust to make it, um, you know, the subject matter of the film kind of drove us outside the conventional talking heads doc anyway. Uh, that would have been a, a really kind of poor response to the material, I think. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And I think I learned a lot about about filmmaking. To me, it sounds incredibly dangerous to show people so many scenes along the way and and not not because feedback isn't welcome and always helpful but maybe that you'd worry that people tire of particular scenes you know and i often say to people if they're getting if they start to feel a particular scene isn't working is to remind themselves how they felt about that scene the first time they watched it because most people who see your film will only see it once yeah that's true i mean i think i think and there's some people obviously you want to hold back for late in the process when they'll see it for that first time uh, it can work both ways, you know, it can be that, that something that troubled them the first time, by the time they've seen it sort of reworked six times, they, they, they'll just go, yeah, that's great. I love that moment when that thing happens, which probably no one watching the film for, for a single time would notice. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it certainly, um, yeah, I don't, I don't mind showing, I, I, I think it's a different showing like an early whole cut of something. I'm really resistant to doing that. With people than showing individual scenes which are sort of out of context and and uh you're really you, you know you're kind of sh giving a taste of something uh whereas obviously when you sit down and watch a hour and a half two hour perhaps rough cut um it's got to be in as advanced as advanced a stage possible because you know it's only really at the point at which it's all kind of singing and dancing that you really understand what it's going to become you mentioned making a film for the cinema, but also making a film that has an advocacy element. I don't really see those things as being mutually exclusive in this case, and that the more cinematic this film becomes, the more engrossed you are, the more you care, and the more you want to tell people to see this film, not just 
because of the subject material, but also because it's a wonderful film in and of itself. But with but now that it's being released, it feels like there's a lot at stake in my mind in that you really want people to see this film and you really want them to think about people with autism and, and their own attitudes and maybe how we can rethink some of those. What are your hopes for, for what it can do and, and how, how has that been going so far? I mean, as, as the film gets released, I think it's it's important. Like, like we have a, a sort of plan for releasing it, which tries to involve autistic people in the release as much as possible, you know, in Q&As, uh, in, in through work packs that have produced. We've produced a couple of um, resource packs around the film, which are written by autistic people um, through with organizations. Uh, so to try and use, I suppose, I mean, I think you're always trying to do this as a in documentaries to use that moment when the kind of light is shone on an issue or a group for a moment for that moment of the release it's an incredibly powerful moment you know a lot of words will get spoken in those few weeks and and there's the potential to to do things that which otherwise can't rise above the noise you know so i think it's it's how it's it's that pressure like how do you you know what is it that we would see as a kind of productive um result of this film and uh, and how can we kind of nudge that into existence i think those are those are the things and and, you, and as a filmmaker i think you can't do that on your own you know you a you don't know that world as well as other people know it you have you're in the hands really more of how do, how do we use this how do you want to use this film to to the communities whose experiences it addresses because it's a completely different job to making a film is getting it out as, yeah. as well as it can be i mean how big a role do you try to play in that because i think a director can bring a lot to that as well because you are the maker of the film people will want to li listen to you people will want to interview you so it, it kind of gives you a dual purpose in that respect yeah i mean i get i do get pretty involved in that stage um i guess it's that cont you're continuing to be that kind of immune system thing aren't you like that let, let's do with this film what its intention is uh you know and uh, but but i think that it's essential that that, that that is also you know perhaps the the non-film work part of it is led by people that, that are better able to do that and more involved and who than you are and who can sustain it over the long term i mean a long time ago 2008 uh made a film called heavy load which is about a punk band uh in which uh included people with learning disabilities and and one of the things that came out of that film was this uh um it's a, it's it's a theme in the film, but it came out in the film as a as a, a as a sort of campaign, almost we call the Stay Up Late campaign, which was about the fact that uh, for a lot of people in care homes, in in group homes, they had fewer opportunities for a social life, particularly in the evenings, just because of the way their staff wrote has changed. So because this film was about a band, they would find that they when they were playing uh, predominantly disabled audience venues the audience would disperse and disappear at eight o'clock and not because the audience didn't like their music or didn't want to be there but because you know their their support workers um rotors time was going to finish at 8 30 and they had to be home for the change and uh, and that resulted in a in a sort of has resulted in you know a change in the way 
um, homes are assessed. You know, we've got in some local authorities assessment that includes the quality of people's social life, not just about whether people eat well or have, you know, are able to do other kinds of activities during the day. Um, it's created this thing called Gig Buddies, which pairs people uh, with uh with loan disabilities to go to gigs um, and that's now global it's in sydney and new york and so that that's and but none of that work would have been possible if the band themselves that were at the center of the film didn't take up that and and pursue it and turn it into an organization and a, which then got charitable status which then kind of got funding and now there's you know five workers in an organization that are kind of powering that and it's still it's 12 years later and it's it's still going and now is is something very different from the film um it's it's its own thing it's funny you mentioned heavy load i mean you have such a diverse filmography at this stage and and i think of films like deep water town of runners don't run known how to change the world they're all quite different or maybe we could put them into a couple of different categories of approaches observational filmmaking versus kind of like more retrospective interview-led filmmaking but is there a commonality to how you choose the subjects that you want to follow and also how you then approach a story in terms of going, well, you know, I have this not necessarily set of rules, but I approach these these films in a certain way to find the story that appeals to me that I want to tell. I mean, I think it's back to that thing of a sense of what the shape of the film is. That's that's one thing like like if it first sort of ideas for subject matter I mean you have low ideas aren't a problem are they you have tons of ideas all the time but it's like getting the idea to the stage where it it both sort of seems something worthwhile to to devote a few years to um and and something that there is an audience for um but so for me that stage of realizing okay so if I'm doing a film in a Ethiopian village it's about the these two young girls then maybe the film has this shape you know maybe they'll succeed maybe they'll fail um, I don't want to hinge the whole film on whether they succeed or not. So it's not about that. It's about what the role is in their culture. And then, then it's about them as adolescents growing up and, and, and leaving home. Um, and it's also about the country in a stage of transition. Um, you know, so you start to get these kind of layers and themes, you know, and there might be a, a layer that's very intimate and personal or even subjective. It might be a layer of the film that's only going on in one person's head, you know, that you're shooting with. And they may not even be aware of it, but you might have sort of seen it maybe. Um, and then there's a kind of layer that's more interpersonal, their relationships with others around them. And then there's there's the wider, bigger themes. And it feels to me, you know, it's important to make films that speak to the times, you know, that, that are about, that have something to say about now. Um, so even if you're doing, like at the moment, I'm doing a film about a, uh, uh, three, based on 300 hours of tape recordings from a house that was haunted by a, a poltergeist. Now, which in some ways is like, oh, well, why at this moment are you doing a film about a poltergeist? So, but I think you start to look in that, you, just, you you bring the times to it, don't you? And you say, well, actually, this is also about perception and truth and about uh, the way people are constructing reality. And, and uh, you know, those themes start to creep in. Um, so I think I think yeah, it's it, for me it's like you know has it got a, sh a shape? Uh, can you see it? You know, are there are there things you can actually film? <laughs> um, it's difficult with a poltergeist. Um, are there? Uh, does it speak to the times? Uh, um, you know, is it something that I that I think I've got a take on? Like it's also your own personal relationship to it, isn't it? Um, it has to be something personal, uh, even even if that personal side is very buried within the film 
to talk a little bit about where you are now with this particular film, you're in the distribution phase. As I said, I've mentioned many of your films there. Actually, as I look at you now, I see sour grapes over your shoulder. So that's another one. But um, I think probably in the in, in the years that you've been making films over the last you know 15 or so years or, or more, the landscape of how documentaries are consumed, for want of a better word, the places that they end up has changed a lot. Can you think a little bit about what you've learned about what happens to your films when they're finished? And maybe in a way to think of, of someone that's making their first film now and is about to take it out into the world. What have you learned about what happens to your films when they're finished? I mean, I, I think I sort of came to um, making films relatively late. You know, I, I think I did Deep Water was when I was in my early 40s. Uh, and, and prior to that, you know, I'd done shorter films, but mostly kind of worked as a community artist for 15 years. And um and I think I've, I've become quite wedded to a certain form, the form of the feature doc, you know, which is a certain thing in itself, you know, and it's a 90 minute experience. It can be very layered. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, information led, voice led. It doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be a thesis, although it can be. Um, so, I'm so, and I don't know what the future of that form is. In some ways it feels like, when I with deep water that was at the moment just after touching the void when when I think certainly the the commercial world of films suddenly realized that documentary features were were sort of possible again you know and had an audience and that was a very exciting time and on the back of that lots of of documentary features got made and then kind of went into a phase where there there were slots for documentary features on television and and you wouldn't be able to get the money for a film just from one country but you could make an international co-production and and kind of sell it across different European channels and those those slots have now pretty much gone you know so so I don't know what where that form stands I sense that it's still you know people are still making those films making feature docs there's an incredible wealth you know perhaps because the equipment's become so much more accessible there's an incredible amount of production happening whether those films will confine their audience I, I sense that there's this kind of cycle that happens where you know things progressively become more formatted the more successful a form is the more you know it starts as fe- as single feature docs and then people go well you know maybe we could make a series because then we can just put the same amount of marketing into like eight hours of stuff instead of like an hour and a half and then then the next stage is well maybe we could make this like a format you know because then instead of just selling the kind of eight hours of stuff we can sell you know that format to 200 countries uh and then i feel like the audience hits a point where it's like this has got so far from what i want from a from documentary from factual which is to bring me a a take on the world that's out there it's so structured and formatted that then they there's a re-embracing of feature docs you know (laughs) and i think at the moment we're on the in the sort of series tipping into formats moment of that cycle, you know, and that you have to wait another five years before uh, suddenly feature docs are the kind of uh, thing of the moment again. I, I, I ask everyone what advice they would give to young people entering the industry. And it, it is a tough one to make a living in. As you say, you came to a little bit late. You, you've been doing it for quite a number of years. What, w- what would you say to yourself if you were starting now, I suppose? 
I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't go to film school um, and I sort of feel like it's more important to kind of have a, a to study something to make films about rather than to study filmmaking. I don't feel like the, the skills of filmmaking, A, you know, the technology changes every six months. So, you, you know, whatever you've learned on one thing uh, is, is, is kind of redundant and needs to be replaced. B, I think you learn you learn it by doing it and it's a kind of lifelong project. Um, so I would say, I, I, I think kind of, obviously the obvious thing is to get out and make things, but I think also to bring yourself to it. I think that's a hard thing to learn. Um, you know, the, the, there's a great quote by the dancer, choreographer, Martha Graham, who says, you know, it's not your, uh, I paraphrase it, but she says it's not, not your job to judge what you do or whether it's good enough. Your, your job is to make it completely your, your own, completely of you. And I think that's kind of in a way all we can do and and because we're kind of human i think an audience will you know whatever's of you is also of other people um and it's it's all of the kind of stuff we put in between that stops us from doing that that ends up with kind of not so great films or films that don't respect an audience or 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 you know treat them as as kind of as too stupid to understand stuff or you know whatever um that that you know making it of you is the crucial thing thanks me jerry i really appreciate the time that yeah you've you've given me today like it, it's it's an amazing film the reason i jump and I, I really hope people will go and see it in in vast numbers but listen thanks a million for for taking the time and and best of luck really appreciate it great thanks Thanks again to Jerry for taking part in the interview. The Reason I Jump is now widely available in the UK and Ireland in now open cinemas. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Film Ireland for supporting the podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>